I wrote this message, and it's right on the subject, uh, really thinking about our teenagers. You know, I was a youth pastor most of my ministry, and, and almost every message I write, I, I, I think about teens. And, uh, and so this message really is for everyone. But as I wrote it, I was thinking about our teens. And I, and I wondered, you know, really, what is it that you're afraid of? What are the things that you're fearful of? Now, when I was a teenager, I really wasn't afraid of much of anything. I, of course, jumped out of planes and skied and did backflips on skis and was a gymnast. And all. I, I really, I didn't have the natural fears that most people, sensible people have. <laughs> uh, but as a teenager, a lot of times we, we don't have... Uh, some of the fears that maybe we ought to have. M. Scott Peck wrote a book, The Road, Re- Road Less Traveled. And in that book he said, Life is difficult. Once we learn this great truth, life becomes easier. And it's important that we understand that. It's important that we understand the, this journey of faith. It's not easy. And today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10. Um, be looking at verses 25b through 31. And this is the story where Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples. And he kind of prepares them. You know, this is going to be hard. Uh, As I've been ridiculed, you'll be ridiculed. As I've been mocked, you'll be mocked. As what's been done to me will be done to you. If they've hated me, surely they'll hate you. And so Jesus is preparing them. And I I remember how important that is in preparing students. Uh, I would plan these mission trips to Mexico and and uh, the way I would promote them is by saying, this is going to be the most difficult trip of your life. If you're a complainer or a whiner, this is not a trip for you. Because this is going to be difficult. This is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And, of course, kids, sign me up. They want, you know, they want a challenge, they, especially if you're a teenager. And, and they wanted to be a part of something that was bigger than them. And we would go and we would build houses. And, and I painted such a terrible scenario. I would talk about the buses breaking down in 110-degree heat in the middle of Texas and every possible bad situation that could happen. I would talk about it when I promoted those trips, and kids would say, sign me up. And then when you got there and it wasn't as difficult as they had expected, then they would say, well, this is nothing. But if I didn't paint it hard and didn't paint a difficult picture, then they got there and it was hard, then they would complain and whine. So they knew the expectations. There were no complainers, no whiners on my trips. And and this was going to be hard. And you knew it was going to be hard. And so Jesus is starting his sending out the 12 disciples in in much the same manner. It's going to be hard. As I've been persecuted, you are going to be persecuted. And I encourage you to read through Matthew chapter 10 today. Well, we have anxieties and fears in life. Um, it's natural for us. And we see the terror attacks in Paris and then Brussels and San Bernardino, California. Um, and suddenly this anxiety rises in us. Uh, there's this sense of insecurity that we have as people. Uh, a survey was done by Life Science of the top ten fears that most Americans face, being, a, being afraid or being very afraid. The corruption of government was the top fear, corruption of our government. Cyber terrorism was the second. Corporate 
tracking of personal information, which is amazing to me. I can get online and search something, and then from now on, as soon as I get on, that item is there. I do CrossFit, and I looked up a pair of shoes, and every time I get online, those CrossFit shoes come up. Cyber terrorism, corporate tracking of personal information, terrorist attacks, and that's been real high on our fear level here recent days. Government tracking of personal information. Now, I don't know. I don't really care about that stuff. I don't have anything to hide, so they can track me all they want. But some of us, some of you fear that. And, uh, bio-warfare, identity theft, and that's a big one. Economic collapse, running out of money in the future, credit card fraud. And we have a lot of fears, don't we? Some of us have fears of heights. Some of us are afraid of spiders. Debbie the other day reached to kill something on the wall. I thought, what are you doing? Because she doesn't kill spiders. She calls, Rex! (laughs) And I go and kill the spider. She doesn't like spiders. She's not necessarily afraid. She's just not going to touch them. The fear of spiders. Uh, It reminds me of a little story of a girl. She was staying at Grandma's house. This little four-year-old was... uh, snuggled into bed and the thunderstorm started happening. It was a spring evening and lightning was flashing and the thunderstorm was happening and Grandma was there in the bedroom and and the little girl said, Grandma, Grandma, would you stay with me tonight? I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And, And Grandma reassured her, it's okay. You're inside, it's safe, it's warm. You're protected here. This is your bed. You're safe. And Grandma said, you'll be okay, honey. And she reached down to kiss her and said, I I have to go sleep in my bed with Grandpa. And the little girl looked up at Grandma and said, he's such a big sissy. (laughs) Did you know in 2015, it was the worst year in modern history for the persecution of the church? Over 7,000 Christians were executed or killed for their faith. In 2015, 2,400 churches were destroyed because they were Christian churches. You see, we have anxieties. We have fears. And what is our response as followers of Christ to the fears that we have? What does the Scripture tell us? How are we informed by the Word of God? How do we deal with our fears? I remember as a youth pastor watching Larry Freeland raise his daughters and Marcus. And uh, Larry taught them all kinds of stuff, but I thought, that's almost bizarre. (laughs) He taught, he taught the girls how to do electrical work and Marcus how to do electrical work. And of course, Janelle Freeland Audrey became an engineer, so I guess it paid off. But Janelle, when she got her license, I remember um, Larry teaching her how to change a tire. He felt like, you know, if you're going to be responsible to drive a car, if you get stranded, you need to know how to change a tire. And of course, little Janelle, if you remember, she was about 95 pounds, if that. And just to get that 
wrench loose, she had to literally stand on the jack tire, the wrench, to get the bolts loose. And, of course, if you're a teenager, you think, you know, that's never going to happen to me. And especially in this day and age, we have cell phones, and we just, we just call somebody, right? But then cell phones weren't so readily available, and so Dad wanted to make sure that Janelle was ready in case something was to happen. Why? Because, well, Dad had been there before. He'd been on the road. He'd been stranded before. And he wanted to make sure that she was ready for any possible scenario that might happen while driving that car. And so he walked her through those scenarios. It's called life mapping. That's why it's so important that your teenage son or daughter is in Sunday school every single week. You see, in Sunday school, your teenage daughter or son has an opportunity to sit with a significant other adult in their life who can walk them through life scenarios and give biblical principles on how to walk through those scenarios. It's life mapping. It's, it's walking through. And Jesus was helping the disciples change a tire in chapter 10 of Matthew. As I am persecuted, you will be persecuted. As I am mocked, you will be mocked. Life is difficult. Life is hard. And I want to prepare you for that. You see, when I was a youth pastor, I, I really didn't have a clue what it, a lot of you went through. I was just so involved in our teens' lives, and of course, teens are healthy, and, and I never really went to the hospitals much. I rarely ever did a funeral. I mean, it was the exception, not the rule, that I would perform a funeral, and yet I do that all the time now. I walk with people through difficult times. And as teens, we often just see our dreams, our ideas. We don't realize how hard this journey is going to be. And so this is a message for you, but it's a message for all of us. How do we deal with the difficulty of the journey of this walk with Christ? So today, we're going to change a perfectly flat tire. See, everything that we hope for, every situation, every circumstance in life is going to give out wear out, fall apart, wear out, or go away. And when that happens, the question really becomes about your foundational hope. The question becomes about a deeper hope. Let me ask you the question. Is your hope in the things of this world, or is your hope in the Lord? Think about some of the things that you are leaning on. Some of you put your hope in your bonus. It's a big part of your check, and so the bigger the percentage, the larger the bonus, the more you're able to accomplish as a family and, and for the kingdom of God, and you put a lot of hope in your bonus. When Debbie and I were younger, we, we, uh, we lived on a monthly. We paid everything monthly. And, but every fifth Sunday, and some of you who are pastors know what I'm talking about, we got another check because we planned monthly. And so that was like we look forward to that fifth Sunday every four times a year because it got us out of trouble. I mean, we, we look forward to taking back from Paul to pay Peter or Peter to pay Paul, whatever the case was. And, and we had our hope kind of, if you would, in those things. For some of you, your hope is in your tax refund. And, of course, that's this time of year. and You're looking forward to April 15th or sending in and getting back some money. And Some of you have to send in money if you're like me. 
And if we're not careful, we can hope for something that's coming and then we become in debt spending what we don't already have. Become a bond, in bondage to the things that wear out, give out, rust, and go away. For some of you, your hope is in a relationship. And when it doesn't work out, your life seems to fall apart. You're in an enmeshed relationship where one person leans upon the other and if the person walks away, you fall. Or if worse, a person were to die, your life falls apart. And you're in this enmeshed relationship. So my question is, where is your hope? Is your hope in the things in this world that give out, wear out, go away? Or is your hope in the Lord? Some of you worry about worrying. Some of you worry about your anxiety because you know you're not to worry as Christians, and so you worry because you worry. I mean, it's hard. Not everybody's built like me. I, I'm not a worrier. It's just not who I am. I don't worry. I just plan. I just do the work. But if you're a worrier, it's tough. And then you feel like, I don't want to worry. I know the Scripture says not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So what do we do? What do we do with all this anxiety, with all this worry? How do we face life with an understanding, with our eyes wide open? You see, the disciples were ready to go on this journey to share their faith, to do what was not possible for them to do in their own strength. Jesus was asking them to heal people. They couldn't do that on their own. And yet they trusted the Lord and they took to the challenge. You see, we believe in the gospel. And we believe that Jesus addresses this issue in a positive way. So how should a Christian respond to our anxieties and our fears? Well, to understand that, we need to go back all the way back to the beginning of Christianity, to that event that kicked off Christianity. In that event, the standard is set for us as followers of Christ. You see, it's easy for us to forget this because we're Americans and we live in the home of the free and the home of the brave and, and uh, we take for granted often our religious liberties. But Christ, in the beginning, the founder of our faith, was betrayed by a friend. He was unjustly arrested. He was illegally tried and convicted. He was flogged. Mark 15, 15 says, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged. And he handed him over to be crucified. To please the crowd. He had Jesus flogged. And Jesus is our example. In Matthew 27, 28, and 29, they stripped him and put scarlet robes on him and they twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hands. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him and hailed him as king of the Jews. He was spat upon. He was beaten. You see, Jesus wasn't captured. 
Jesus rode into Jerusalem knowing his fate on a donkey. Jesus wasn't taken. He gave himself for you and for me. And he says to us, follow me. Follow my example. Follow me. In Luke 9, 23, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world and let forfeits his very self? So let's look at Matthew chapter 10. Christ sends out the twelve. He warns them, this is going to be tough. As they've ridiculed me, they're going to ridicule you. Matthew 10, verse 25, the second part B, 25B. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, and he's speaking here of Jesus himself, how much more will the members of the household? Jesus is saying, hey, hey, if I've been ridiculed, you'll be ridiculed. If I've been mocked, you'll be mocked. So do not be afraid of them, he says. And this is a command that he gives to them. Do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that has not been disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. You see, Jesus is speaking about the Heavenly Father, that He knows all things. There's nothing hidden from my Father. Everything that you do in my name's sake will be revealed. My Father is just, is loving, kind. What I tell you in the dark, he says, Jesus is speaking about the time he spent with his disciples. I imagine in my mind, around campfires, in the garden, during times of prayer, conversations around the campfire about this journey of faith. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What I whispered in your ears, proclaim on the rooftops. Then he says again, do not be afraid. You see, God is with us. God has revealed himself through his written word. And he reveals us himself through the, his Holy Spirit. And God is with us. And he says to us today, do not be afraid. And this is the second time Jesus instructs his disciples not to be afraid. Then he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who destroys the both soul and body in hell. Who's he speaking of there? He's speaking of God. You see, he's putting it all in perspective. He's helping us to understand the big picture. They can kill you, but they can't take your eternal reward. 
They can kill you, but they can't take away the promises of God. You can be struck with disease, but your promise, my promises, are true. You can face hardships. Life may not work out as you had dreamed or expected, but my promises are true. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell, speaking of God. Let me ask you a question. How many Bibles do you have in your house? We have a lot of Bibles in our house. You know, we kind of grew up Christian. We have children's Bibles. I remember reading children's Bibles with my children late at night. We have NIB, NIV Bibles, I have stacks of those. I keep buying the same Bible over and over again because I like the size and the shape. It's a good preaching Bible. We take for granted the Bibles that we have. And yet, the very fact that it's translated into English is a miracle in itself. You see, William Tyndale was considered the father of the English Bible. And after graduating from Oxford and then Cambridge... Uh, he felt led of the Lord to translate the Bible into English. And so today, 90% of the King James Version of the Bible, the translations are credited to William Tyndale. 75% of the American Standard Version, the translation is accredited to William Tyndale. But when William Tyndale translated the Bible, it was illegal. He knew that, and so he went to... Uh, the bishop and uh, Tunsdale and asked that he could be authorized to translate the Bible and his grant, his, his request was refused. And yet Tyndale would not uh, take this disapproval and allow it to stop him, so he fled to Hamburg, Germany. And it was there that he began to translate the Old Testament and the New Testament into English. And he was doing so as a part of one of the reformers at the threat of his own life. They were out to find him. King Henry III, um, he was interested in Tinsdale, but he was not interested in in freeing him. King Henry VIII, I mean, King Henry VIII was then in the throes of divorce with Queen Catherine, and he offered Tinsdale a safe passage to England if he would serve as his writer and scholar. But Tyndale refused, saying he would not return until the Bible could be legally translated into English. Finally, Tyndale was befriended by a guy that uh, um, was kind of an unsavory character. Uh, He was a man of wealth, uh, of prestige. He was in the upper class but he was also a gambler, and he lost everything. He lost his money, his respect, his position in society, and he saw the opportunity to befriend Tyndale, and so he befriended him and then betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities. The authorities took him into jail, and he was there for a year and a half before he was burned at the stake. For believing, among other things, in the forgiveness of sins, that mercy offered in the gospel was enough 
for salvation. So in in October 6, 1936, he was strangled and then burned at the stake. His last prayer was this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. The prayer was answered in part three years later. In 1939, King Henry VIII required every parish in the Church of England to have a copy of the English Bible available to its parishioners. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. You see, we do not go to church. We are the church. We do not go to church. We are the church. And if anybody's going to proclaim Christ, it needs to be us, followers of Christ, who lift up boldly. Oh, the journey may not be easy, and I might be mocked, but Jesus was mocked. The journey may not be as I had dreamed. Life may be difficult. I may face anxieties, but I put it in the perspective, the big picture. They can destroy the body, but they can't take away the promise of eternity with my Lord. Do you know why we as Christians have confidence in our faith? It's not because the Bible tells me so. It's not because our candidate is elected. It's not because terrorism is eliminated. It's not because life worked out the way that we expected or the life worked out the way that we dreamed. The reason we have confidence, the reason we can live without fear is because Jesus was raised from the dead. Christians do not simply believe because the Bible tells us so. I got ahead of myself there. You see, Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus. And he wrote about his life, his death, and his resurrection. Mark was there. He knew Jesus. And he wrote about him. He believed in him. He walked with him. Luke, who thoroughly investigated everything, Dr. Luke, wrote about the resurrection and believed it. Peter, who was an eyewitness, wrote about it and believed. John, who was an eyewitness to the crucifixion, who was close to Jesus, brother John, wrote about it and believed. And, of course, James, the brother of Jesus, who, who was a late coming to the story, Initially did not believe in the earthly ministry of Jesus, but later came to know the saving grace and know Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, shows up late to the game and wrote about the resurrection. Thomas, who was not there that first Sunday night in that upper room, when the disciples were there and they were talking about, did you hear what the the women saw? On the road to Emmaus, the two men on the journey, 
And they were all talking, and then Jesus just shows up, but Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas said, unless I see his side, unless I see his, his hands and his feet, I, I, I cannot believe. That following week, Jesus just shows up. The doors were closed, and Jesus just shows up. He says to Thomas, without even Thomas speaking, Thomas, reach out your hand and touch my side. Touch my hands. And Thomas, of course, proclaimed, My Lord and my God. You see, we believe because history points to the life of Christ. Everything before Christ, B.C., everything after Christ, A.D. We believe because of His Holy Spirit that tugs at our heart. You see, this provenient grace that we cannot escape. Scripture says it this way, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hears my voice, I will come in and have a relationship with him and he with me. And he calls us to himself. And because we believe, we can face our tomorrows. All fear, all anxiety is gone. Because he lives we can have confidence. Keith is going to come and lead us in that song. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Teens, I want you to know something. Life may not work out as you dreamed. But my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can face your tomorrows with confidence that he will be with you.